Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. I didn't do newspapers, okay? Health information you can trust. Wired has the best words. Remember, it's all just prelude. Hey, welcome back. Our next guest has been a leading pioneer across the technology sector since the early days in California. Jane Metcalf is a Webby Lifetime Achievement winner and co-founder of Wired Magazine. It's difficult to summarize the enormous impact that Wired has had on the internet since its first publication in 1993, and how it served as a roadmap for the digital revolution, with Jane and her partner Lewis at the lead. Jane now has her eyes set on documenting how the biotechnology revolution will impact the future of our species through her new publication, Neo.life. We talk with Jane about biotechnology's benefits, like how it's empowered companies to craft personalized diets for customers based on their DNA, as well as concerns, like what happens when outsourcing places our genomic data in the wrong hands. We came in 1991, and, um, you know, California, seen from Amsterdam, was this kind of mythical kind of place in my mind. Neither one of us had lived here or spent much time here. And, um, you know, we had this sense of it all being driven by, you know, engineers and it all being very um, sort of numérique, as the French would say, you know, just very binary. Um, but on the other hand, San Francisco had this allure, you know, sort of being Babylon by the Bay. And... Uh, so we came over from Amsterdam really not knowing what to expect. You know, the magazine that we were publishing at the time in Amsterdam was um, dealing with the technologies for processing language. And ultimately, it was sort of man-machine interface stuff, whether it was voice or um, optical or what have you, um, machine translation, all these really interesting technologies. And I had a database of 1,500 companies. And I thought, you know, I'm going to get to California, and I'll be convinced that I am at the center of the universe. And I'm going to forget, you know, that there was this incredible international air to what we were doing before that. And so I went through my database, and I looked up, and out of 1,500 companies, which were really at the forefront of um, language processing, um, only 150 were based in California. And not all of them were in, you know, Silicon Valley. So I came thinking, you know, there's going to be a scene here, but there's a much bigger scene. And don't forget it. Hmm. And, you know, we arrived in San Francisco and found this just extraordinary bubbling of um, alternative cultures. And Amsterdam's got its fair share of alternative culture, but um, it doesn't have or didn't have that sort of combustible mix of, um, of art and immigrants and technology and, um, and design and seriousness and playfulness. And I think most importantly, um, risk-taking. You know, so um, that was fundamentally different. And, you know, once we tasted that, we realized, you know, we're not going to be able to find people 
to, you know, do the blood, sweat, and tears required to get a startup off the ground, you know, to basically work for nothing and, you know, take a big risk on uh, on their careers. In Amsterdam. Um, in Amsterdam. Right. And nor did we think we would be able to find the risk capital in Amsterdam. And so, um, you know, coming here, I was meeting these extraordinary people, you know, young, who'd already been successful and had, you know, money in their bank accounts to potentially give us startup funds. And they were incredibly optimistic about what we were doing. And they're like, yeah, there's no reason why you can't do that. You know, and that was a fundamentally different message than we were getting everywhere else we went. How did you, were you like really confident you got here and I, I can do this <laughs> and you're in like, you're around all these like super intellectual people who are doing all these crazy things, some of them really amazing even at the time. Were you just like gung-ho and knew you could do it or was it was it daunting? Um, it certainly was daunting. You know, it was it was less daunting than just like, yeah, psh, of course, we'll just do this because it's a really cool idea. You know, we had no idea how right. hard it was going to be. Yeah. We had no idea how the deck was stacked against us. We started to get an inkling of it when we went looking for a place to live and nobody would rent to us. And we're like, well, no, I mean, we, we had this successful little magazine in Amsterdam and now we're moving to California to make it bigger. So it's obviously going to be bigger and better and more successful. And they're like, yes, but you have no jobs right. and you have no income. And in fact, you have no credit history because we'd both been out of the country for 10 years. Yeah. Me basically since the day I graduated from college. Right. And, um, and I'm like, we're not going to rent you an apartment. So we ended up having to stay in uh, a home that uh, somebody we knew would rent to us because no one else would, uh, would let us do that. But you know, it was just – Lewis likes to say it was just a love story. It wasn't a career choice, mm. you know, and it's really kind of true. Yeah. You know? um, we just thought it was incredibly interesting that it would be incredibly powerful to be able to tell that story less from a um, technology point of view and more from a here's how the technology is going to change the world point of view. Right. So for us, it was an obvious thing. We could see it so clearly that I could paint it for you, and we got really good at helping other people see it. But, you know, in retrospect, it was complete crapshoot. And, you know, the economy was just dismal at the time. Um, you know, we had war in the Gulf and we had media industry just collapsing. Um, you know, lots of people trying to hang on to their jobs and ad agencies, you know, going out of business and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, people would say to create a prototype is going to cost you $50,000 or something. And I think we did it for two you know, so we just use technology in ways that made things other people thought were impossible happen. Yeah. And so every time we found these solutions, I mean, we would either find a technology solution or we would find some crazy person who was willing to do things for free, you know, or on a volunteer basis or in exchange for some vague promise of equity in the future. And um, it all became doable. And, you know, it's funny because it took us two years from the time we arrived. It was just shy of two years, about three months shy of two years from the time we arrived until the time the first issue hit the newsstands. And it, there were certainly some dark days, but um, it never occurred to us that we couldn't do it. Um, tell me about, like, when you look back at it, what is the thing, if any, that surprised you or that you've changed your mind about or that you think about differently than you did at the time? Mm. That's a really good question. Um, you know... We were extremely staunch supporters of privacy. Um, you know, I was on the board of the Electronic Frontier Foundation um, for a brief time until the wired business just got so busy I couldn't really give it the time it needed. Um, but 
you know, it was it it was and remains still a very thorny issue. But it was easier then uh, to argue that there should be no access to people's files under any circumstances. Right. You know, now obviously for law enforcement purposes, and particularly in the fight against terrorism, you know, that becomes a fairly absolutist position. Mm. And you know. Back then, we would have called it a slippery slope. Right. Now we call it a complicated issue. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you know, we um, we also felt very strongly about you know unbridled development that whatever was good for the internet would be good for everyone. And you know, really, just in the last couple of years, when we've seen manipulation of the media, um, how dangerous that can be. And so, I think the issues. Um, were very important guideposts, and they were very important heuristics. And I think it allowed for the unfettered, you know, development of the internet, uh, which has been a good thing. Um, you know, now there's so many technology opportunities to take advantage of people. Um, there's a lot of technology solutions, you know, to prevent that. Um, so it's, in a way, it's the same old story, but the stakes are higher. Hmm. You know, T- tell me. So tell me a bit about what you're working on now. It's called Neo Life. I feel like the digital revolution kind of led us to a very commercial place um, where a lot of business interests, you know, dominate the development of um, of what's happening in tech. Um, and I just, I don't know, it just was less of a world-changing story after a while. You yeah. know, things began to sort of play out the way we imagined. I mean, with twists and turns, obviously, and surprises, but largely... Um, you know, my kids grew up basically, you know, as part of the digital generation and tethered to their screens and, um, you know, confronted with uh, creating personas for themselves at a very young age, um, having access to all the world's knowledge, but at the same time, basically being constantly judged and on display and all the rest of it. Um, so that's kind of... That must have been, I mean, that must be really, I mean, I w- for any parent... That must be difficult for someone who has such an intimate knowledge of how we actually got there. That must be like an incredibly conflicting type of feeling to have to watch them go through that and to know and to really have been part of. I mean, I don't know about conflicting. You know, it's like what would we have done differently? How yeah. would we have designed things differently? Um, you know, the thing that we knew at the time was that the technology was developing faster than the literacy and faster than the sort of ethics or morality of it. Um, and that continues to be the case, and that really plays out in what I'm doing now with Neolife. Um, you know, people don't necessarily invent or discover technologies um, with a with a mission in mind. So many times they're they're accidents. Many times they figure out how to do something and then figure out how to apply it. And but once you figured it out, you know, it's hard to to unwind that knowledge. Yeah. And so now you have to figure out how to deal with it. So it's constantly getting out in front of our ability to think about it. So, so tell know. me what Neo.Life's about. So Neo.Life basically picks up where um, the digital revolution um, peaks, you know, which is, okay, now we figured it out, you know, billions of people are online and have devices and so forth, but, you know, what's next? And um, in a way, it's profoundly different. In a way, it's just the next logical step. Um, and it's basically where technology enters the body or how biology and technology fuse um, to create not a new world around us, but to create new humans. And so it really is about the future of our species. Hmm. You know, we happen to be here at this extraordinary point in time when you can literally, you know, edit the human germline and create a 
something beyond Homo sapiens. And one of the most interesting things to think about is, um, you know, we always growing up looked at the year 2000 was like the future. You know, that's that's what the world's going to be like in 2000. And I'm constantly looking around today at, in 2017 and thinking, you know, these are the ideas, these are the sort of design um, conceits, you know, that we always imagined. Uh, so we're kind of living in that future that we imagined. So now we're looking into what the next future looks like and what the technologies are that are going to get us there. Yeah. And, you know, it's already happening. Neodolife's a media company. Yes. yes? yes. Tell me about So it's, it's a media company. You're just starting. Just give me a little bit of the where you are in its development um, and, and what's going on with it. Um, so I started thinking about – I've always been interested in health. I've always been um, very focused on what I eat and, and how I treat my body. Um, I've always been interested in how the brain works and how we – uh, consume information and process information and what we can do with that, you know, with intellect and um, cognitive process. Um, I, you, I, we, uh, we did a stint as uh, the owners of a chocolate factory and managers of a chocolate factory. I remember reading about that, Cho, right? Cho chocolate. Is that how you say it? Yeah, right. okay. yeah, good. A lot of people say T-C-H-O yeah. or T-Cho yeah. or whatever. No, it's just Cho, like the first syllable of chocolate. Right. Um, and... Chocolate is this extraordinary food that has um, a lot of health benefits, you know, cognitive benefits, but also, um, you know, in terms of blood pressure and all sorts of uh, applications for anything from, you know, migraines to um, even diabetes. There's been research on this. Hmm. Um, and so I just started to think about um, how that is unfortunately not the dialogue that we typically have. We don't talk about um, food in terms of technology, and we don't talk about um, technology in terms of biology. And so I, um, I ran into some, some family challenges, health challenges, um, that involved both mental illness and cognitive decline and dementia um, in elderly parents. And I began looking for any kind of solution that would help me, you know, whether it was, are there new drugs for Alzheimer's prevention? Are there digital apps that can enable me or, or facilitate my staying in touch with, um, with my parents who lived, you know, 2,500 miles away? Um, and that led me into this brave new world of people who reminded me so much of the people that I was so wowed by um, at the beginning of the Wired days. Right. You know, some of the smartest people in the world, you know, tinkerers, engineers, makers. Only in this case, a lot of them have an additional 15 years worth of study, you know, of deeply complex systems. Right. Um, which, you know, the human biology is just an extraordinary onion that you just, the more layers you peel back, you know, the more you realize you don't know anything. Mm. And... Um, and so that led me to realize that these, in fact, were the most powerful people on the planet. And these were the people who would be shaping not just, you know, how we live, but how we evolve. Right. So I, um, I was trying to figure out what my role in all of that was. And I, you know, am I a digital health entrepreneur? Am I going to raise money for research? Am I going to, you know, I just, so I was going to conferences, reading books, learning more and more about the stuff that I just found so fascinating. And, um... One day, a friend of mine who uh, is a chief marketing officer at Veritas Genetics uh, came to me and said, you know, I've got this story idea. Can you help me produce it or, or give me ideas about how to produce it? And once we talked about it, I was like, that's my story. I know media. Maybe <laughs> I knew media, but at least it's something in my background. Yeah. And I want to launch the company based on this story. 
So do you, you feel know, like the is there a similarity in like where the industry is compared to like sort of where it was when you when you launched Wired? Yes, and in fact, I think about those similarities all the time. And um, my Wired friends who are you know interested or, or reporting on you know what's happening in biology now, and I keep having this conversation. It's like, tell me how it's different because I see so many similarities. Mm. Um, but you know, the difference fundamentally is life or death. Right. <laughs> That's kind of a big right. one. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the consequences are grave. And so, um, therefore, the risks are much higher. The cost typically is higher. Um, you know, not just human costs, but financial costs. Right. Um, it's a lot more complicated because biology is more complicated than bits, you know, cells. And, uh, and neurotransmitters are a lot more complicated than um, zeros and ones. And there's also a much more complex infrastructure that throws up a lot more institutional obstacles or hurdles. Um, but I think it's also um, hampered by the fact that, you know, if you go through medical school and you get your PhD and you're in academic research, you know, there's a process. And a lot of what happened that created the digital revolution uh, was able to trample those processes and show, you know, big results and big opportunities um, in a way that is much harder when mm. you're talking about biology. Tell me about some of the fields or interesting developments and like sort of like what you think the impacts will be like yeah. to regular people out there who might not follow neurobiology or gene hacking or CRISPR or stuff like that. Right. Well, CRISPR is the, the first one that um, just blows me away. And it's the one that... Um, you know, could have been a theoretical idea that takes a very long time to develop. Um, and in fact, you know, before CRISPR came along, there were gene editing technologies already being used. I think there was like nine of them. Um, but the opportunity to harness that to edit human genes um, was really the huge breakthrough and how easy it is to use, relatively easy, um, and how relatively inexpensive it is has made it available um, or or what's the word, uh, exploitable by people. Yes, you have to have a fairly substantial amount of understanding under your belt, but um, it doesn't depend on, you know, big expensive lab equipment or um, or certifications, whatever. If you can get the material, you can right. get up and running. Right. And so, you know, the FBI has now identified this as one of, you know, the gravest threats to our national security is people's ability to, to edit genomes. Because they're worried that the... the fall into the, in the bad hands that they'll edit and make evil people or evil technologies with it or All diseases. Kinds of I mean, um, there's a guy at the FBI responsible for um, bioweapons uh, and tracking the people, the biohackers who are involved in that. And um, he was saying that, um, you know, using this to create weapons is um, a terrifying thought. But he thinks there's a bigger risk that we are outsourcing a lot of our genome sequencing to China right now because mm. they can do it faster and cheaper. Uh -huh. And so massive amounts of genomic data are flowing across these you know, national borders and being processed by Chinese companies. Huh. And what they can do with that information, you know, targeted bioweapons or blackmail, or you, know, you can create right. who knows what kind of, of monster or threat. Um, you know, that's something. There's just a lot of value in the actual data, the data itself. itself. Right. right. And how quickly you figure out, you know, how things work or how things could be targeted. Um, and, yeah, so I think that's a really interesting. It is life or death, huh? You absolutely. Really <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking around here. Yeah, exactly. What, um, what are the, what's the optimistic side of CRISPR? 
Is there an optimistic side? You know what? I keep asking people, like, <laughs> let's sit down because there's, you know, the ethicists are out in force right now and they are um, very good at making their concerns heard. And I think it's a very important, you know, debatable topic um, that we need to all be having. Um, but the ethicists tend to not give you a positive um, spin on this. Sure. You know, they don't say, you know, this is scary, but this would probably be okay. You know, they just focus on the this yeah. is scary part. Yeah. Um, in fact, that's one of the things that highlights that um, dominates the debate about GMO foods too, right? There may be advantages to GMO foods. Like for instance, you know, you could develop crops that are able to withstand flooding and and not be destroyed, and therefore the farmer's livelihoods aren't destroyed, and they have food to feed their families and so forth. But it's hard to split that part out from um, the environmental impacts. You know, well, what if that allows us um, allows people to use more pesticides. And so now are the pesticides getting into the environment because this, the crops have been engineered to withstand them? Right. Um, you know, or the socioeconomic issues. You know, now a farmer can no longer use, you know, the seeds from his prior year crop because somebody's, you know, um, engineered it so that it can't, so it's sterile. Right. Those things can happen. Um, but the debate is dominated by those as opposed to let's first talk about how many millions or billions of more people we can feed and how much the farmer's income can increase and how that can sustain the growth of a society. Yeah. And so is that the type of stories and the type of perspective and, and sort of like 360 thinking you're trying to do with Neo.Life? That Absolutely. You'll, that you'll be covering all these different sides of these issues? And is it intended for regular people or yeah. people who are interested generally in these things? Or is it, it's not a business? It's not intended for other neurobiologists, for instance? Well, we do have a lot of biologists, chemists, physicists um, reading uh, what we're publishing. And I think the value that they're deriving from it is I'm not necessarily going to tell them about research that in their fields that sure. they don't know about. But I do find myself talking to people studying neuroscience, you know, who are at the leading edge of neuroscience who don't know a lot about what's happening in food, or they don't know a lot about CRISPR. They don't know a lot about, um, you know, even other aspects of, of the neuroscience mm. world. Yeah. Because, you know, these, these are very complex fields. They have to go very, very deep, and they have not been um, trained, nor do they necessarily have the bandwidth to go, you know, horizontally yeah. and to, to kind of connect the dots and see how the threads all work. That's one of the things that blew me away is when I started going to conferences and I was like, I'm going to lurk back here in the background and, and you guys just talk and I'm just going to observe. And they're like, well, well, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I just started noticing, you know, how these things all fit together. And they're like, that's so interesting. <laughs> so I think that's the, I think that's the phase that we're in right now is giving people um, who are so heads down, you know, and working so hard in their field right. an opportunity to think a little more holistically right. about how these things um, can impact their work. You know, the connection between the gut and the brain is, you know, one of those perfect examples. A microbiologist is not necessarily following advancements in, you know, Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's disease. And yet, you know, there could absolutely be a, a, a bacterial source for things like Parkinson's. Right. You know? And if we found that and we could find some kind of treatment for that? Could we prevent these things from moving up into the nervous system and into the brains? Um, when we started Wired, there were not a lot of positive visions of the future. You know, it was um, cyberpunk was dominating the kind of cultural landscape. And that was a pretty bleak um, scenario. You know, it was always sort of apocalyptic and, you know, everything's broken down and um, it's chaos and uh, you're being dominated by AIs and robots and, and so forth. And, you know, obviously we haven't completely gone away from that, but 
over the last 25 years, there's been this enormous amount of human empowerment, you know, this incredible growth of human well-being, both in terms of economics, in terms of, you know, access to knowledge and opportunity. Um, and Wired very consciously tried to cultivate a positive vision of the future. Yeah. And we're doing the same thing with Neolife. Um, I think people's concerns about, you know, AIs and robots are bigger and stronger than ever. Um, and yet, you know, with opportunities like CRISPR, I mean, let's talk about eliminating genetically inherited diseases. Right. You know, let's start there. Because yeah. that's what we're best able to do with the technology right now. Um, you know, what are the opportunities for food production? You know, what are the opportunities for using animals to grow organs so that we could transplant them into humans. I mean, that is a huge opportunity of and of itself. You know, people, there, there's hundreds of people on the waiting list for organ transplants who die. And um, the opportunity to, to actually harvest these from other animals is, I mean, imagine solving that problem. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And so much of this, the success of this, I'd imagine, is going to be based on like the storytelling, right? And like, how, the, how can you tell that positive story? And I, you know, I'm a firm believer that the positive stories help shape the future. Mm -hmm. I think there's at at some point, at some point, you can take it too far, and it becomes Pollyannish. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. But but I think that's a, and I think it's a big part of what you guys did at Wired. Um, you and you also pioneered a lot of storytelling techniques. Uh, in those days. I mean, this is like literally where people were first putting pictures on websites with text and clicking on them. Yep. Um, the medium, that medium, and where you guys, where you're going to be publishing, I think, on the web, and I'm sure elsewhere also, but has really evolved. And there's like all these new, I mean, the, the opportunity in the media to be, in the what that's out there to be creative and tell stories is like better than it's ever been, right? Like you can, so many different ways you can tell these stories. Now, is that an exciting part of of Neo.life? It's hugely exciting. Yeah. Um, we haven't done a lot of experimentation with that. I mean, we've fallen back on something that I used to do at our magazine in Amsterdam, which is, you know, just like targeted, you know, emails. So um, we're publishing on Medium. Uh, so the simple fact that I didn't have to build out a website and a whole new yeah. platform, I mean, that was super easy. Right. Um, and email is also super easy. There's tons of, uh, of tools to help you manage that. Um, you know, I'm really excited about podcasts. I just, I've always loved radio. I think it's this incredibly intimate kind of media where um, you can be in people's, you know, headphones. You can be in their cars with them. You know, you can go yeah. anywhere with them. Um, you know, just the profusion of tools um, and opportunities is just limitless. It just feels like, I mean, that's part of what was a little terrifying because when I started thinking about starting a media company, 
uh, it was 2015, 2016, there were an enormous number of disruptions, you know, in the field. And, you know, there's lots of ways to tell stories. There's not necessarily a lot of good ways to make money. Um, and I don't need to get rich off of this. I'm just, this is something I'm doing because I love it. Um, I think we'll end up with an incredibly important audience, an incredibly influential platform that can help shape the debate yeah. um, and can help uh, educate people who are otherwise not seeing the big picture or are afraid that they can't understand the science and therefore they're going to have to leave it to someone else to make decisions for them. And this is one of the things that I think is really interesting about research done. Uh, there's a man named Kevin Esfeldt, for instance, um, who has been, uh, he's got a joint appointment at Harvard and MIT, um, and he's been working with people on Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard to help eliminate Lyme disease by preventing the spirochete from being transmitted from mice uh, into other animals and into humans. And so he's gone in and explained to them the difference between a gene drive and and What's the spirochete? Is that not the, oh, that's that's not the, the tick? Is that the tick? No. No, no, no that's the um, that's the virus that oh, okay. will actually attack you and, and create okay. Lyme Got disease. It. Right. Yeah. Um, so if he could prevent the transmission um, from the mice to the humans, then we could potentially control that. Um, and so he's gone into these two communities who you would think would be pretty focused on, you know, organic food, non-GMO things, pretty um, uh, hostile to this kind of thinking, um, and explained the science to them and explained where we are in the research, what he thinks he can do, what the steps would be, and allowed the people in the community to then get up to speed and make their own decisions about whether or not he pursues the research. Hmm. And he's had fantastic results. I mean, people came out, they listened, they asked smart questions, they went back and considered it. They said, okay, you can take the next step. He basically said, let's make this transparent. Let's allow the community to make the decisions. Because he said, the consequences are so enormous that if scientists are the ones left making the decisions, um, they may not have the broadest perspective of all the different stakeholders. Yeah. So I think that's a really interesting model. It's like, I mean, it's like engineers when they make, they come up with some new technology that they have some inkling and understanding is like a huge deal, but then their first application of it is just like totally irrelevant right. and regular people have no use for it at all. But you give it to people. I mean, there's a million things on the internet that have happened like this, right? Where you exactly. give something to people and then they start using it and you're like, oh my God, that's Would never have imagined right. that. That's yeah. one of the great things about artists right. who are not afraid of technology. You yeah. know? So when the artists get involved and start playing with it, then all sorts of amazing things happen. So much of this of the challenge here, it seems like, is like informational, right? Which is that when you when you actually take people and you sort of get them away from whatever they're doing and you give them good, thoughtful information, a lot of times they sit back and they ask really great questions, like you're saying, and they come up with great decisions. But nine, most of the time, it's actually not how people mm-hmm. <laughs> process information, right? They're like, especially these days, there's 30 different websites they're on, mm-hmm. and these people saying this on social media and this, and it's just like, it's so... Well, and this is also, I think, one of the opportunities right. for Neolife, yeah. because, you know, where would you be reading about this? Um, you know, I think most people are not reading the scientific journals. Um, you know, the people who are reading them are reading about that specific research, but they don't typically publish a lot about how that research can be deployed or the effects that it can have um, or how quickly things will develop. You know, those types of things are left to the general media and the uh, business press. But, you know, the general media doesn't want to go deep enough to really understand and explain the science. They're mostly interested in, you know, how can we get you to click on this headline? 
Um, and that would not be by going deep or giving you thought pieces about yeah. it. And the business press are focused on, um, you know, sort of Wall Street and VC perspectives on this stuff. So, you know, I think we have a chance to understand the research deeply, but communicate it in a way that people across disciplines can appreciate. So have you had a chance to work with like all these incredible scientists? Are you bringing them on as, are they, they're contributors or advisors? Or Absolutely. How are, you, how are you working with the scientific community? Absolutely. Um, you know, th- we have people to call whenever we have a, a story and, you know, we have like a, it's an informal at this point. We can make it a little more formal uh, going forward. But, you know, a group of advisors, you know, tell me, uh, can, does this research pass the smell test, you know, for you? And those conversations are amazing, really interesting. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're reaching out and, and building the community kind of, you know, one person at a time. Hmm. And, uh, you know, to get the nutrigenomics people talking to the neuroscience people, talking to um, – you know, people involved in human performance, you know, the, the future of human performance. I mean, all these areas have a lot to say to each other. And, of course, overriding all of this is food, you know, right. and food systems. And how are we learning? What are we learning about, um, you know, what's optimum for you or your genotype or your phenotype? And yeah. Tell me about – so tell me a bit about food. It sounds like it's something you personally well, are interested in. It is. It's very much on my mind. Tell me what's going on with food in, in, the, in the sort of neurobiology world. Well um, – If that's even a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're screening a film this weekend called Food Evolution, uh-huh. and um, it is narrated by Neil deGrasse Tyson, and it's a, a documentary that tries to separate out these various issues. You know, what is is GMO food bad for your health? You know, will eating food that's been genetically modified make you sick? Mm-hmm. And there's no research that shows that, and yet the debate about this is just raging, that GMO foods yeah. are bad and you know, there's people quoted saying, I don't care what the FDA says or the EPA or the World Health Organization or any of the scientists. I care what moms on Facebook say. And right. it's like, wow. It's actually really? one of those areas where there's a bunch of, like, areas where if, where scientists say that conservatives ignore science. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's some graphs out there which are really interesting that sort of show how, like, in climate change and some things – conservatives, for whatever reason, ignore science. But this is actually the counterpoint of this is that this is one GMO stuff is one of the areas that scientists say that liberals ignore science and that mm-hmm. there's a huge polemic and discussion around this, but there's actually not as much there's not as much concern in the scientific community as there is within within liberal groups. And it's it's a big conflict, which is one of the reasons why I'm so excited about it. Because, yeah. you know, coming out of the organic food world, as I did with Cho Chocolate, um, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of the people in that space, and they are, you know, this is going to be a lot of um, conflict. I think they're going to have a really hard time with this. And, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson says, you know, um, the good thing about science is it doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not. <laughs> you know? For sure. Um, so I think food is one of those deeply held beliefs that people have. You know, they grew up with this food that their parents served them. They have a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, ritual around it, a lot of memory embedded in it. And, you know, it's, it defines our, our family life in many ways. And um, so, but watching this enormous upheaval um, is really interesting. And if you can change the way people think about food, as Alice Waters has famously said, you can change the way they think about anything. And so this is, in my mind, this is like at the very, very forefront of the debate. You know, what we still don't know is how does the food we eat impact our microbiome? And we still don't know how does our microbiome impact the rest of our health? 
And so there's many, many decades of research to come on this. Um, and people find these correlations, which may or may not be causations, but are the nevertheless, you know, really interesting. And people, you know, who are committed to improving their health or fighting disease or preventing disease, you know, are willing to do some extraordinary things in terms of changing their diets or taking um, supplements or other forms of, um, of food tampering or, or hacking, um, you know, just to see what effect it'll have on them. And that's really interesting. I mean, we've run a bunch of stories. Uh, we ran one last week about um, companies that are trying to match your DNA with what food is best for you. Uh, there's a company here called Habit in San Francisco. Is that, and does that stuff seem to check out? I mean, I've read, I think there was that book that came out that was like the food diet you should have based on your blood type. Your blood which, type. This is the next. It seemed a little, I don't know, maybe maybe it's maybe it's true. I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, but, Did you but, ever look at your blood type and try it? My mom tried it. And she, she she seemed to think she liked it. But I, I read like 30 pages in the book and then I was just like, I don't know about this, which is maybe a simplistic and yeah. An ignorant uh, look at it. it was just sort of an initial reaction I had, which is why I'm asking you. Like, is that stuff? Does it seem to to map to to science and fact and check out? There's not enough proof yet, um, and it also depends on what you're looking for. You know, if you're looking to prevent disease, that's a really hard thing. You need a very large group of people um, to have sequenced their genomes, to have uh, in a controlled way consumed exactly what you think they consumed, which is impossible. Right. You know, unless right. you're talking about the military or yeah. astronauts, you know, those are two or great locking them in a room for two years or something. Yeah. Two great populations where you actually can do that. Um, but you just need enough people to have sequenced their genome or sequence their microbiome and then be in that rigorous um, clinical setting. Um, but, you know, that doesn't stop people from from getting out there and starting companies and, right. you know, right. selling you, you know, yeah. kits to, to sequence and, and experiment and um, I mean, I know I changed my diet and I feel a thousand percent better. Right. And I got my uh, 23andMe results and it said that I would be sensitive to caffeine, which I already knew, um, but that I was also potentially sensitive to dairy. And my father was. And when I eliminated dairy from my diet, I felt so much better. It's like, would I have done that without 23andMe? Yeah, probably. But now I really know it. Right. You know, so on, on that level alone, just yeah. very general, very top level, I think it's beneficial you know, what we don't know is as we get deeper into it. Um, you know, my, my parents were both heavy smokers. I'm from Kentucky, and, you know, they were both heavy smokers. Um, you know, and my dad didn't die from his, the cigarettes directly. He didn't. I thought he was going to be in an oxygen tent by the time he was 50. You know, he died of Alzheimer's, and smoking correlates with Alzheimer's. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom has mental illness, and I wonder if the diet – um, that she ate growing up, not necessarily even growing up, but as a young adult and later, you know, which was heavy in processed foods and lots of um, fat and lots of sugar and lots of wheat and all those sorts of things, Proce pro probably a lot of processed foods and chemicals and preservatives, um, you know, did that impact her mental state? Yeah. Could she have avoided the problem if she'd had a different diet? I think it's possible. Right. It's so, some, of stuff, sorry, some of the stuff's so hard, too, because it uh, – a lot of these things just make so much sense, right? You spend a lifetime eating things. It 100% makes mm -hmm. sense. It's going to have impact on your long-term health. It's going to have impact on your short-term health. It's going to have impact on your mental health. I mean, you're putting all this food in your body. Anybody who's eating like five teaspoons of sugar or whatever it may be, caffeine knows that it has some impact. 
But then there's all these people that are out there that are like claiming all these other impacts, right? Mm -hmm. Many of which are just absolutely made up. Mm -hmm. And then there's all these people who are out there who are claiming all this impact, which is not made up. And so the regular public has to sort of like sort through what is true and what isn't. And like even for the most like, you know, determined, driven, intellectually curious person who's like, you know, just made it their mission to figure it out. It's hard to figure out. It's really hard to figure out. I mean, I just think back growing up, it's eggs are good for you. Eggs are bad for you. You know, it's like fat's bad for you. No, fat's good for you. It's sugar that's bad for you. You yeah. know, and it's like what are all of the corrupting influences, you know, that, that drive that, the commercial influences and the corruption of the research and all of that, which I know a little bit about having um, grown up with the people who are trying to tell you that, you know, your doctor recommends this brand of cigarettes over that brand. <laughs> Um, so you got your, you got your, you have your uh, job cut out for you on re-educating the food market, absolutely. And the the CRISPR world and explaining that. I would imagine you're going to touch on AI, machine learning, and stuff like that. A absolutely, bit. absolutely. Um, but I, you know, before we leave that topic, I yeah. just wanted to say that um, you know how people feel is um, very subjective on a lot of levels. I mean, particularly if you're talking about sort of digestive function. Um, you can have a whole bunch of parasites in your gut that are asymptomatic in most people but are causing you problems. Right. So what is it in your DNA, what is it in your microbiome and your makeup that we can start to isolate? And so I think the only way we can really tackle this is just by accumulating huge amounts of data. And, you know, there's a new initiative that's just been announced where they want to really get precision medicine off the ground. Um, they want to collect massive amounts of health data from a million people in America. Um, you can volunteer. They've got a, a small cohort they're working with to start. But the idea is, you know, only when we have a really large data set can we start to um, to make progress in this. And what's interesting is a country like Denmark, where uh, for, I forget how many years, 30, 40 years, they've basically been already collecting that data with the citizens, you know, consent and participation. Yeah. And so they know where you go to school and they know what you've eaten as a you know, student in that school and they know what your medical history is and they know what the environmental inf- influences are where you grew up. And so it's a really rich data set that people are getting a lot of um, insights from. So if we start to have that happening in a bunch of different countries, you know, it's going to take you know, machine learning. It's going to take um, artificial intelligence to start to piece this together. Um, so the and- people who are building those platforms – you know, who are able to create, to find the causation between them, you know, that's where we're really going to have a lot of accelerated um, developments. Yeah, I mean, we've already seen, we have a, I have a, a friend and Webby judge uh, named Nancy Loveland who started a crisis text line. Um, and that's essentially, we've had her on the podcast before, and that's a, uh, like a crisis line service that's for, that they do via text. So it's for mostly young people who are having mental crises, you know, whatever it might be. And, um, they offer like trained support. So if you're, you know, whatever your whatever the problem might be, you can text and say, I'm feeling this way. I'm depressed. I want to do whatever. And they mm-hmm. provide support. And the fact that it all happens via text means that they have 25 million texts now of, of people with varying mental health issues. Um, and they're able to like unleash the sort of force multiplier of machine learning. On well, the information, and they've learned so much in the early stages, a year or two into it. They've learned so much about mental health because they have this corpus of data that can now be analyzed. Everything from, you know, what time of day are people most likely to have suicidal thoughts and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So, Which is huge yeah. and wonderful. And I'm sure she's aware of researchers um, who have been looking at Twitter feeds and Facebook feeds who can actually predict 
without having to have direct contact where somebody, you know, already raises their hands and says, you know, talk to me, I'm not happy. Um, they can actually start to predict people um, who will experience a depressive episode or, you know, sink into depression, which I think is really exciting, you know, because if you have to wait for someone to seek help, you're missing a huge percentage of the people at risk. Yeah. So many people don't say anything about this time, this time around. Well, I have no problem doing what I'm doing, but I haven't tried to really do anything. I mean, right. advertising requests are coming in the door. Yeah. Um, you know, no one's asked if they can invest yet. So we'll see. Um, you know, I will go out with the package here so- shortly, so we'll see what happens. You'll be raising money. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, I, I started saying th- we're growing very quickly, suddenly, and um, there's so much more I want to do, and there's we need to put more resources to this more quickly. Yeah. I think there's a big opportunity for us. So, you know, but will my experience differ from somebody who's never had a successful investment? So will that of be... You know, we've got a bunch of companies now that are putting big money into um, brain research and like being able to read your thoughts, being able to anticipate, you know, what you're going to say. Um, There's amazing research, but there's also some really remarkable prototypes, you know, whether it's Facebook or Elon Musk or, you know, Brian Johnson uh, has a company called Kernel. Um, You know, there's lots of companies out there. Uh, There's one here called Halo Neuroscience, which is doing neuropriming, where they basically have, um, you know, a a device over your head that um, you practice doing your sport or your your exercise in a very specific and deliberate way. And it basically primes your brain to perform that way for the next hour. You know, so this stuff is just exploding all over the place with consumer devices. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff out there making us not very present. Mm-hmm. Some of this stuff is going to be really, I mean, if the, if that neuro, uh, sorry, if that prosthetic device you described, which is the smartphone in front of you, is one of those things, mm-hmm. um, there's going to be a lot of this stuff. Is that a cha- I mean, Are you concerned about that? Um, I actually think there's a lot of things out there that help you focus. Um, a friend of mine started this company, which I can't talk enough about. It's um, It's called Focus at Will. His name is Will, so it's kind of fun, at sign. And um, he was a musician, uh, a session guitarist. He played with um, the English Beat back in the day. And now what he's doing is um, working with musicians to create um, beats and sounds that are stimulating to you um, without being distracting. So the moment at which your favorite song, you know, the chorus comes up and you're ready to stop what you're doing and sing along with the refrain, he would divert the music. He would take it down. He would take the stimulation level down. So he would keep you just on the edge hmm. without actually grabbing your attention away from what you're doing. Huh. And, you know, he's got this bevy of scientists working with him as well as tons of musicians. And um, they come up with these snippets and they ask you at the beginning a, a few profile questions and then they guide you towards which ones might work best for you. And what does that do? Somebody very caffeine sensitive, you know, uh-huh. I tend to want something that's less stimulation than somebody that basically codes best when they're listening to heavy metal. Um, So they segment you out like that, and then you just dial it in. And I put on the headphones, and for 45 minutes, I am deep. And it goes by like that. And the ding comes up, and it's like, wow, that was great. And it's like a meditation? It's You're just listening to, you know, ambient or electronic Uh or, um, you know, classical-infused tones or, um, you know, whatever it is that's going to work best for you. Um, and it's just music. Huh. It's just background music. It's like Muzak for the brain age. Right. Fascinating. It's really good. Yeah. Jane Metcalf, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with Neo.life. We'll be watching. Thank you, David. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. Thank you. 
Thanks so much to Jane for talking with us. If you're interested in learning more about the ins and outs of biotechnology and how Jane is shaping the debate surrounding our genetics and technology, head over to medium.com slash neo.life. And you can follow Jane at Jane Metcalf on Twitter. Our producer is Sebastian Aday. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Michael Charbonneau and Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a Sunday afternoon at a British pub. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.